Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 338 BC, the Chinese statesman Shang Yang was torn apart by four chariots pulling in opposite directions and his entire extended family was murdered. His violent death was the revenge of the aristocrats in his state of Qin, enraged by reforms he'd imposed which made all equal before the law. Shang Yang's legal structure survived him, strengthening the state of Qin until it dominated rivals. A century later, Qin produced the first emperor of a unified China, an emperor best known globally now for his terracotta army. Legalism, the Shang Yang system became known, has often been vilified for putting law above family ties and for the harsh punishments it imposed. Successive leaders have seen its value, though, from the Han dynasty that overthrew the Qin down to Mao Zedong in the 20th century. With me to discuss Chinese legalism are Francis Wood, former curator of the Chinese collections at the British Library, Hilda de Wirt, Professor of Chinese History at Leiden University, and Rule Stokes, Joseph Needham, Professor of Chinese History at the University of Cambridge. Francis Wood, the period in which legalism emerged is from in, in which it emerged is called the Warring States period. Who was warring and why? The Warring States grows out of um, the previous system of the Zhou dynasty. If we start with the Shang, about 3,000 years ago, Shang ruled the Yellow River area of China. Then the Zhou come in from the slightly to the northwest. We're still talking about a tiny area in the north of China. And the Zhou in, decided to rule their area by enfiefing um, family members and trusted advisers. So they set up separate rulers in all over their domain. And gradually, this system breaks down. The central authority of the Zhou breaks down and separate little states emerge. You start off with about 100 little states, but by the time we get to the warring states in about 481, then there are by then seven major separate states which are fighting each other for control. Now, there's a fairly important aspect to it, which is that in all of those states, things are beginning to change, and they're moving from a feudal sort of aristocratic system of administration to one in which you have administrators who are trained, who are appointed by the central state, and who administer different areas, collecting taxes and registering the population for military service. So you've got separate states, all tending towards a slightly more modern version of administration, but fighting each other for supremacy. This is 400, 300 BC. We're talking about yes. that time, yeah. Well, what about life in those states that made legalism so attra- began to make legalism so attractive? I think one thing is that you have these administrators who are not, as it were, local lords, but they're appointed by the centre. Um, they register the population and they are... So they're, they're not interested in sort of their own gain from their area, but they are, as it were, bureaucrats. Um, for the population, I mean, it was said that at the beginning they grumbled enormously at the imposition of laws and punishments and rewards and so on. But eventually they realised that you could leave something in the road and no one would pinch it and the mountains were no longer full of bandits and robbers. So for ordinary people, up to a point, um, legalism was seen to be a protection against um, aristocratic misrule. We call it legalism. You, you three scholars call it legalism now, but that word came in much later. But it was essentially to do with making and writing down laws which everybody had to keep. 
it was that. It, and I suppose, but I, one perhaps should talk more strongly about the sort of rewards and punishment for actually following the laws. Yes, well, we're coming to punishments in a second. I just not, can, can you give us more idea of the extent of the laws and what the idea of laws meant to to, to the person to persons in the warring states? I mean, I've, I've said some, I read somewhere that it meant that everybody was equal before the law. Now, was that true? And if so, what change did that bring? Well, I think it was um, true up to a point. I mean, there are always problems. I mean, the reason that Shangyang was torn apart was because he tried to impose um, a legal punishment upon the heir to the throne of the state of Qin, and this guy rather disagreed with that idea. But in theory, yes. I mean, there's a, quite a lot of the legal system survives in documents which have been unearthed on bamboo slips, and you can see that legal cases were looked at in a proper and sort of arbitrary manner. You had to investigate legal cases, you had to see what was right and what was wrong, and punishments and rewards and so on were fixed, so people people knew where they were. Hilda de Vert, we mentioned Shang Yang. What do we know about his life, the statesman? Shang Yang was a politician who was active in the 4th century uh, before the Common Era. He started his career as a lower-level administrator in one of the smaller states that uh, Francis was, was talking about, the state of, of Wei. Um, but he was somebody with, with bigger ideas, bigger ideas about how a small state could be turned into uh, one of the leading contenders. And this caught the attention of the then ruler of the state of Qin. He was hired, he was made prime minister, and he pushed through a pact Package of reforms that accomplished uh, this this promise. How did he achieve such eminence? I've described him as a philosopher. Did he come from a, an aristocratic background? What sort of education did he have? How did he get to where he got to? From what we can tell, uh, there is a book that records some of his ideas, although he did not uh, write it himself. It looks like he had a lower aristocratic background, and it means that uh, he was trained in the traditions of his time. He was familiar with some of the ideas that were circulating, Confucian ideas, but also the ideas of military strategists, for example. Uh, but he was not somebody who had the kind of connections that would immediately push him to the top at the court of the state where he uh, started his career. So we're talking about talent then, being recognised. Yeah, 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 he was somebody with talent, and he was not the only one who was able to transform his career uh, in this way at this point in time. Rulers who wanted to make their states more competitive were looking for this sort of talent, advisors who could help them uh, transform what had been uh, aristocratic feudal states into centralised states. Can you give us an overview of the main uh, beneficial reforms uh, that uh, Shang Yang Shang Yang introduced? I think there are about three that are really uh, important. Um, first of all, he pushed through a, a taxation reform that was tied to a set of agricultural reforms. He divided up the land into small plots that uh, would be worked on by uh, agricultural families. The income from uh, that land would be taxed directly by the state. And that was important because that would be uh, that would provide the resources to turn the state into one that had a bureaucracy uh, that could keep the resources flowing, and it could also manage uh, an army, a large army. All the peasants were well, you had at a least farmer peasants. army, didn't you? That was yes, the idea. Indeed, the idea was to to make agriculture uh, the foundation for that society, but at the same time to recruit uh, the farmers. As, as soldiers. So that by, by this point in time, the size of the armies are incredibly huge if we compare this to what was uh, standard elsewhere uh, in the right. world at this point in time, hundreds of thousands uh, to be precise. Secondly, he al 
also pushed did this, through. Did mm? this have a role in diminishing the importance of the aristocrats with their chariots? Was this, was this a counterweight and, in fact, a, a superior force to the aristocratic chariots which dominated military warfare at that time? Well, it was certainly a way to increase the size of armies and to uh, mobilise armies that would be able to expand the size of the territories of, of the kingdoms. Uh, aristocratic warfare uh, was uh, mostly tied to certain conventions. Uh, it, it could have been a force that, that accomplished more, but the conventions prohibited uh, aristocrats from expanding in the way that states would once they had recruited uh, universal armies. So I introduced you one, two, two and three to go. Two and three to go. So the second one that's quite important is that he divided the state of Qin up into administrative districts. That would allow the state to control those taxes, to make them flow uh, to the center. I should add that this was not necessarily a new idea. Other states had similarly experimented with this idea. But what was remarkable about Shangyang is that this was pushed through in a systematic way. And finally, what was also important, uh, he as... uh, Francis has also hinted at, was responsible for coming up with a legal system that uh, made collective punishment central to how the law would be enforced. And that meant that uh, if somebody committed uh, a crime or uh, transgressed uh, against uh, the legal code, not only that person would be responsible, but also those who were part of his or her team, those who were responsible for watching uh, their behavior. Can we turn to Rule Stokes for punishment? Can you develop the ideas of punishment that were formulated? The idea, as Hilda said, is, is rightly that you, you punish collectively. So that uh, you don't simply punish somebody who perpetrates a crime, but you might be, uh, <coughs> you might be uh, taking out his entire family, his entire district. You punish people his by... His entire district? Yes. I mean, you could, you could literally take out you know, entire, entire units. By take out, do you mean what I think Execution. you Execution. Um, so these, these were extremely wow. harsh. Um, mutual implication was one of those uh, principles underlying punishment. That means that if you failed to report a crime, you would be punished as severely as actually the person who commits the crime. So that's one important aspect of it. Uh, a second aspect that's very important is the public nature of punishments. We do find records that increasingly insist on the fact that criminals would be executed at market spaces in public places and would be exposed there. Another feature that's quite uh, <coughs> fascinating about about uh, the, 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 the legalist view of punishment is actually that crimes committed... Uh, among kin were judged to be more severe than crimes that were actually uh, committed by strangers, and, and that is very interesting because that you know that touches perhaps you know on some Confucian ideas you know of, of, of the family unit or the family as a sanctioning a sanctioning unit. Um, there were punishments that were can extremely hard. Can you excuse me? It's fa- mm-hmm. fascinating. So what was what explanation was given for that? So you, if you committed a crime inside your family, it was more severely punished than if a stranger committed a crime on your family. So basically, if uh, if as a father, you know, you, you, you decided for some reason to beat your son to death, that wouldn't be a, a punishable crime. If a son denounced his father, that would be punishable, or if a son denounced his grandparents, that would be that that would be a you know a, a severe a severe a severe crime. And uh, the ways in which people implemented punishment and the physical nature of it was also graded. And so these punishments, they graded, they were graded from the most, the most physically mutilating punishments, which meant chopping off the nose, chopping off limbs, tattooing the face, mutilating visual parts of the body. 
Uh, shaving of the beard and shaving of the hair was one of the lighter punishments. It was a so-called insult to somebody's manhood, if if, if you want. Uh, to to obviously, you know, the most the most the most severe punishments: boiling people alive, you know, quartering them, and so on and so on. One was able to redeem oneself from one's crimes by buying oneself out of some of the more severe punishments, and specifically, officials were able to do that, not by paying cash but by, uh, <clears throat> by, by handing over shields and armor. So there was a very military kind of uh, nature about, about the redemption of punishment there. How, did this di- how does this differ from a reign of terror? Uh, it, it, for the people on the ground, I, I assume, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't differ from a reign of terror. I mean, terror is, is, is seen as, in one way, a binding mechanism that guarantees that the institution of, of, of rulership is seen to be absolute. We talking about legalism, uh, and the, that which were most clearly opposed it was Confucianism, which had come before it and remained throughout it and continued after it in some way. Can you uh, tell us uh, the main differences between uh, what we now call legalism and Confucianism? They are very different philosophies, although they also share some things in common. Let me first talk about the differences. Confucians would look at you know, human beings as, as people you could morally cultivate into better persons. So Confucians believe that there is a set of ethical values, a set of virtues uh, <clears throat> that everybody can adhere to uh, to become a better person. Uh, legalists take a dimmer view of human beings as almost sort of a white sheet, as people who can be can be manipulated, who are best not educated, and who need to be trained to be obedient subjects, you know, of of a collective. Ignorance was uh, knowing things was very dangerous for most people. That's correct. Thought to be dangerous. That's correct. Uh, ignorance, uh, books. Uh, 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 philosophy, literature, all the things that might distract you from hard labor and from potentially uh, you know, questioning the ruler, you know, would be... Would, would and this be is the legalist side, and Confucianism is entirely different. Confucians do like the past, to tend to invoke the past, you know, to justify what they do in the present, like the canon, like the training of, of, of literati based on a literary canon and so on, whereas, whereas legalists wouldn't. Confucians define authority very positively in a sense that it's something that everybody can achieve ultimately, whereas the legalists tend to define authority very negatively. It's something the ruler dictates and everybody and everybody just follows on. They do have one thing in common though, and that is that both of these philosophies uh, are ruler-based, ruler-centered. They do believe that society is best ruled with one person at the top. And Confucius might think that this has to be an enlightened, a morally educated person, whereas the legalists probably think more in terms of an institution. Even if you have a mediocre ruler, it's the institution that needs to, needs to remain standing. Francis Wood, how is the Qin state making use of its legalism to overcome the other six states? I think it was basically what it did was really put these ideas into practice much more effectively than anybody else. I mean, Hilda mentioned raising armies. I mean, one of the things that was important was to um, make population registers, make sure you'd got enough people in the army. And these armies were absolutely huge. Um, so it's and it's a question really of enforcement um, that you have also. I mean, I think the ruler, particularly the first emperor, was obviously quite a kind of charismatic character. And he was probably known throughout the country. I mean, he travelled the country. He chose black as his colour, so he would travel in a a massive chariot with black flags, everyone dressed in black, through fields of peasants wearing kind of plain homespun and so on. Um, It really is to do with the effectiveness of the policy. 
um, a ruthless ruler who um, puts these military, particularly, ideas into practice. One thing that attracted one of the many things, one of the things that attracted my attention was how they seemed to tackle everything. Uh, the weights and measures were standardised throughout this mass tract of land. Um, coinage was standardised. The language was standardised and still exists to this day. Uh, how easy was that to do? Because it's an enormous task, isn't it? Yes, I think, and I think people don't really give enough. And roads were standardised for, so that chariots could use them. He made fan- yes, the first emperor had huge roads constructed, going had a great north road going north, roads so that he could get to different parts of the country. And I think when people don't realise how he, Qin starts off as a tiny state, it grows, it swallows up the others. But by two two one, when he unifies the country, we then see China as we know it now. It's not just that Yellow River Valley area in the north. He's ruling China from the Liaodong peninsula right down to the south but of course makes use of this administrative structure that was already there that you have bureaucrats sort of trained in administration with law books sent out to each part of the country and as you say the standardizations are quite extraordinary in order to unify the country the the unification of a script is frightfully important and that lasts to the present day holding China together in a way that might have broken apart otherwise standardising weights and measures and of course weights and measures were were checked carefully by the local bureaucrats and they had to check the local granaries they had to check everything they had rule books which said if we find rat holes in the granary you will be punished you'll be fined one shield and three mouse holes equal one rat hole so he's got this administration over the whole country which is standard operating to standard rules with a standard script a standard coinage the coinage which lasted up until the 20th century and he has a country of 52 million people when we in two, 200 BC are about 2 million. Exactly. Like. Yeah. And doing what? In comparison. Oh, we're not doing too badly. <laughs> we, can, we can dig into that later, Francis. Hilda, Hilda de Wert. Um, another key name is Han Fei. Who is he and why is he important? Uh, Han Fei was active about a century after Shang Yang. Um, he started his career also in a different state, uh, but perhaps in comparison to not only Shang Yang, but most of the other advisors of the time, he uh, was well positioned. Uh, he belonged to an aristocratic family and would have been in a position actually to play a role there. But he had one problem. He couldn't communicate very well, literally. He was a stutterer. Uh, and, but that also had its advantages. It meant that he actually sat down and wrote out his ideas very systematically. So we could say that whereas Shangyang was the person who put Qin on the map through his uh, set of reforms, Humphrey was the one who systematically wrote out what legalism was really about. You, you asked earlier, uh, is it only about law codes? Uh, it, it isn't really. Uh, uh, Humphrey was also somebody who fought very carefully about how can we make this legal system work? And in order to do that, there were a couple of other things that were important. Uh, first of all, as, as Wool has already discussed, he fought very deeply about how can you secure the position, the authority of the ruler. He also fought about how do you set up a bureaucracy and how do you make sure that that bureaucracy doesn't go corrupt? How do you control it effectively? That was very important for a ruler. Law was part of this as well, but law was what you what these bureaucrats should be using to make sure that they could keep control over the population. The ruler couldn't do that directly. For that, he needed a reliable bureaucracy. He worked out these ideas very systematically. When it comes, for example, to the position of the ruler, uh, he argued that morality, uh, the sort of thing that was important to Confucius, was irrelevant. 
What was important was simply the position of the ruler, and everybody should respect that. The problem, he said, that we're having with the warring states is that people do not respect the position of the ruler. They question uh, their morality, their intelligence, their talent, and that leads to this kind of constant overthrow of, uh, of rulers. If you don't want that, if you want stability, you need to make sure that everybody uh, respects the position of uh, the ruler, absolute obedience. Secondly, when it comes to uh, the uh, bureaucracy, um, he uh, made it a key point that whereas it was important that people know the law, that was probably the only thing that they needed to know. They, they, they shouldn't look at other things, but they needed to know the law that was public, but everything else that happened in the court should be absolutely held in secrecy. So a ruler should never divulge his feelings, his plans, his ideas to his bureaucrats, because that would lead to them taking advantage of him. So there's sort of a psychological uh, dimension to this, this plan as well. And this is perhaps also one of the reaso reasons why we find uh, Humphrey's writings in management sections. Uh, management Managers who prefer an authoritarian rule might sort of get something out of, you know, how do you uh, keep your ideas secret? At the same time, how do you uh, get a sense of who's trying to get too close to you, to take advantage of you and, and so forth? And uh, the link which you make in your notes with Machiavelli uh, and Machiavelli's uh, way of going forward mm -hmm. is something that, that we might draw on later. Rule Thurks, um, how can we just talk a bit more about this legalism? Because it it's begins to be used as, a, as a, a tool of power, doesn't it? Begins So you don't rush out with your chariots and kill people and stab people. You actually say, we're going we're gonna to rule this thing by the law. We're going to make the law so ferocious that nobody dare disobey. And we're going to train up meritocrats who are at our command uh, and they're going to uh, implement it. This is a heck of a change, isn't it, in, 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 in this great civilization. I'd like to know more about how they, how they managed to, not get away with it's the wrong word, how they managed to, to do it, really. It was an extremely efficient machine. Uh, I think actually what the legalists probably invented is bureaucratic efficiency at its best. And it actually invented what is probably the agent at the center of political philosophy ever since, that is the bureaucrat. An official for an absolutist ruler, <coughs> for a legalist ruler, was a necessary evil. You need them because they are the conduct, they are the link between what the court wants to be implemented in the localities. And on the other hand, they are the people who report back to the court. They report, they, they gather taxes, they, they report back <coughs> on population register and so on. But you want officials who at no point in that process when information gets from the court to the localities and back impose their own selfish interpretation on them. And they're entirely dependent on the court. And they, have they don't to have a hinterland of, uh, of land uh, relationships with other powerful persons. They're, they're, in one way, they're, they're, they're running things, but in the other way, they're absolutely de dependent. In the ideal world, they are absolutely independent, and they, they don't have private interests. Mm. Now, uh, where that works very well in the legal estate is, of course, when you are trying to implement either you know, military... Uh, military measures or economic measures. I mean, you can't turn people overnight from farmers into soldiers unless, of course, you've got a very tight bureaucratic network of, of, of people who execute it on the ground. 
Um, the idea that um, that 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 an official actually sort of interferes with the nitty gritty of 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 what happens almost in the private sphere of somebody's life is part of that whole culture. So in ens- in essence, you want to turn a population into a population that is obedient, that is guided by a set of professionally trained officials who have no self interest and simply sort of you know do what the rules. Wants, wants them to do. But a society that is encouraged, in fact, forced to spy on each other to an extraordinary extent. That was one of the, you know, that was that was one of <coughs> one of the elements in this. Um, it's 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 a society as you know, it, it, we we must imagine it to be a society which, which you know, which was tense at all times, uh, in times of peace. So when 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 the farmers were not transformed into soldiers. Taxation and and surplus of revenue was meant to be to be spent on military affairs to keep to keep people busy to keep them to keep them trained. Um, in times of peace, uh, farming is not simply about producing agricultural produce, but farming is about controlling the population. And in essence, warfare and farming are two skills that are transferable. So the idea is, in, in many of these texts, that the way you, you work the fields, the way you fight the soil, is a skill that is easily transferable on the battlefield. And the units, the cooperative units of farmers on the fields create bonds that are easily transferable in a military context. So if every citizen, adult male, doubles up as a farmer and uh, you know, a military conscript, you are creating a formidable uh, 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 military machine. Francis, well, the, the temptation is to think that the warring states glide into legalism. and the, Now, it's an extraordinary change. I mean, I'm struck by how big a change it is in just the way whole of life is organized were that there must have been rebellions against it uh, uh, fights against it uh, it can't have just uh, sauntered down the street and everybody said oh look we've got a new system I think I, but I think what's important is to, is to see that sort of gradual development um, that yeah. you know, without sort of talking about legalism as a theory the sort of practice and as Raoul was saying that I mean, these bureaucrats um, from about from the third century BC they were paid salaries you know, they were no longer dependent on the agricultural produce of the land that they were in. So they are, they're very different. Society is changing a lot in its form of organisation. But if you were to take, for example, the first emperor, I mean, obviously, um, in order Can to conquer... dates here? The first emperor, well, he unifies... He's born in um, 259 BC, but 221 is the important time, the when he unifies the whole of China. He pulls China together. That's when he's, China becomes China and it's ruled by someone who calls himself the first emperor and he comes from the Qin, which has conquered all the other states. So you, you have someone like that who um, is, as Raoul says, he's in, in charge of this state, which has got all these bureaucrats there. But it's been a very gradual process. It's been a long process of people getting used to the idea of the way they serve the central state. And, I mean, apart from military, you know, as, as Raul was saying, I mean, you've got agriculture and military, but you also have the system of, of corvée labour, another form of taxation, so that one of the things that the first emperor did um, in Qin was to build massive roads and massive canals. I mean, there were waterways linking the south of China with almost the very north, and there were these roads... A distance of... Sorry? How long is that? 
thousands of miles. Yeah, about three thousand, is it something yes. like that? Yeah. And then these roads, which go right up to the north, right to the west, and he's so imperial roads, which were built so that imperial passage was easy, and also you know communication was easy. That all these bureaucrats needed to communicate with the centre and vice versa. So a lot of the time, people instead of actually fighting after they've established the state of Chin, would spend their time, instead of being military, they would be labourers on these massive imperial projects, which again keeps them sort of engaged. And facilitate trade. Yes. Well, facilitate trade is another another question. There's a sort of aspect of anti-mercantilism in in legalism. Yes. But they still... Isn't isn't it true that they're moving more towards trade here or not, in internal trade? I might have got this completely wrong, so put me right well, and yes, we can move I mean, on. <laughs> I think what, I mean, one of the reasons for linking all the waterways is, of course, to make sure that, that grain can flow from the base, you know, wonderful places like the Sichuan Basin into the centre. I mean, the, the conqu- conquest of, of Sichuan was one of the most important aspects of Qin's rise to power. Hildebert, uh, how did China change under the first emperor? Can you give us some broad brush strokes as to how it changed under well, him? In some ways, what uh, Francis has has, uh, just described are the key points. Uh, What we essentially uh, get is a uh, state uh, that is in control over uh, agricultural production, army, um, infrastructure, and that is also at the basis of legalism itself, the idea that everything needs to be centralized to make the state stronger. Uh, and that essentially is uh, implemented under the first emperor. We could also say that in terms of his personal uh, style of, of ruling, there is also a significant change. Until this point, most uh, rulers had been kings. They were content in most cases to rule over a defined uh, area. When the emperor came to power into 21 uh, BCE and had unified the various states, contending states, uh, he picked a new name for himself. He called himself the August Sovereign uh, Huangdi, uh, a term that had up till this point been reserved for supreme leadership, either religious uh, leadership or it had been used for uh, the sage kings of the past, the mythical sage kings uh, of the past. So the expectation was also that this would be a new lasting system. And the new here is is quite important. They had the idea that this was a radical break with what had been, and that it would be something that uh, would be consolidated down the line. Ruth, can you tell us why uh, legalism became vilified after the fall of the first, well, the second, the emperor's son, after the fall of the Chins and Han came, the Han dynasty came in? They became vilified because one of the great laws in, 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 in dynastic history in China is that you also always should vilify your immediate predecessors. And so... It isn't uh, only China. Uh, it is not, 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 not exclusively a Chinese phenomenon. Indeed, you're right. Um, <clears throat> the charge was that, 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 uh, that Qin had all the tools to unite, you know, this sort of disparate... Uh, landscape into a unified empire, uh, but then actually, you know, with a, re- a regime, you know, of terror, uh, you don't you don't necessarily run something for the long for the long for the long term. So there were scholars and literati in the Han who you know created this image of savage Chin. Um, ironically, though, uh, the Han continued most of Qin's institutions, and so it is it is it is interesting to see that uh, people borrow ideas from Shangyang uh, in court debates. You know, as 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 late as the first century BC. Uh, so we we w- what happened is that <clears throat> I suppose. 
The critics turned to the personality of the first emperor rather than criticizing institutions of Qin in their criticism, uh, where the continuities are very, very clear, is in law. So the Han legal code is almost a copy of the Qin legal code. And so there was criticism, there was a rhetoric out there, but deep down on the inside, a lot of the institutions that the legalists had, had put together were continued. And that's a position you hold as well, Francis, Francis isn't it? But, uh, but the, the vilification uh, by the hand of uh, this legalism was quite effective. In, 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 in That propaganda was quite effective for many centuries. Well, it's one of the most enduring um, yes. stories of Chinese history that, you know, if you want to sort of think of evil, you think of the first emperor. I mean, I think, you know, in contrast, one should remember there was no rebellion against him during his lifetime. Admittedly, you know, he ran a fairly strong state, but We've nevertheless... Heard about that, yes. But nevertheless, during his lifetime, it wasn't until his um, successor took over that there was a fairly immediate rebellion. But it, no, it's quite extraordinary. The Chinese... Um, legend about about um, the first emperor. I mean, it goes back to saying he's illegitimate, um, he's the son of a, a prostitute and a merchant, which is all very bad. Um, physically, he's described in the most extraordinary kind of animal-like terms with the face of a wolf and the breast of a chicken and all sorts of things like that. Um, and it is, it is as, as Roel said, it's, it's to do with justifying the mandate of heaven that, um, that the Han has been um, appointed by heaven, as it were, to overthrow this evil beast. And so they have to kind of start it. But he is really one of the most, the strongest kind of hate figures in Chinese history. And Confucianism comes, comes back into play more with the Han, doesn't it, Hilda? Can you tell us how that happened and that's how that happened. Yes. Well, uh, under the hand, as, as uh, Rule was saying, there is actually a continuation of all of this, but it's dressed up as something quite different. Uh, the uh, early Han emperors go back to sort of a mixed system where they allow some of the aristocrats some more power, they give them some land that they can uh, control, but over time that gets taken back too. Uh, they uh, appoint Confucian scholars, or you could call them classicist scholars, who are uh, well-trained in the textual tradition, who also edit uh, the texts of the past. Um, they also write uh, history. So the idea is to curate that past far more carefully uh, than uh, the Qin had done. Uh, but at the same time, I think we should say that legalism was vilified, but uh, in many ways it sort of became part of a larger Chinese repertoire of, of rule that uh, it, it is there. Uh, and I, I think one of the more significant legacies, I would say, that traditionally Confucians had actually been advocates of, of a feudal order, because that was ultimately what had existed during the Zhou dynasty up till the Qin Empire. We occasionally uh, later on find back echoes of this. We find people in the 12th century, also in the 17th century, saying what was actually really wrong about the Qin uh, was not so much the emperor, but it was the fact that they divided the entire space up into administrative districts. And that, what that meant actually is that it vested authority in the law, not in people, not in people who were responsible, who were moral, and so forth. But ultimately, they never go back to this plan. Uh, Rule, we've heard about the reputation of the first emperor, Mr. Evil, over the centuries. What about the reputations of Xiangyang and uh, Hanfei? Well, very dubious. Um, in, 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 in moments of disunity, uh, when people uh, need to find arguments for sort of you know, garnering power and getting military and economic activity up and running, uh, some reformers throughout sort of the ages have invoked Xiangyang and Hanfei as you know people who have valuable ideas. 
but generally speaking, uh, very little has happened in terms of taking their ideas further. Very few commentaries were written, for example, on the texts that were produced either by Han Fei and attributed to Shangyang. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, as we've been uh, as uh, as we've been saying a number of times, um, we should probably look at these thinkers as being part of you know the political DNA you know of 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 of, of China f- from very early on. So on the inside, there's an expression in Chinese, you know, to be a Confucian on the outside and be a legalist on the inside, and that basically means you know you 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 do, in essence, uphold you know this desire for unity, this desire for uniformity, you know, imposition of power the one ruler, but on the outside you dress this up with you know, a Confucian culture, with, you know, uh, literature, with literati that are trained, you know, in a proper tradition and so on. And you should be educated and uh, and you should be kind. And, and like you should be kind and you should be educated and so on. And, and in essence, that's how legalism, you know, has been... I mean, I suppose one many rules were closet legalists, you could say, throughout throughout sort of Chinese history, and that perhaps runs into into the present the present day, actually. Mm. If you want to develop that, Francis, Mao Zedong took up legalism with with no compunction whatsoever. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very true what Raoul says that that, you know it's it's there underneath, but it's incredibly rare to find it mentioned throughout history. On the other hand, Chairman Mao um, proudly announced in the 1950s that um, that the first emperor had only um, buried 460. Um, scholars, and he had managed 460,000. Um, his maths was a bit kind of peculiar. Buried alive, actually. It? Well, I mean, this is probably anyway, something... As might be, I don't want to regret that. Probably so something that never happened anyway, but, um, but Chairman Mao liked it as a story, and it's very characteristic of him. And also in the very peculiar movement of 1970s, 73 onwards, um, there was a, a movement in China called Criticise Lin Biao, Criticise Confucius. Um, Lin Biao was the disgraced head of the army who'd fled in 1971, um, probably to to Russia. But and it was discovered, um, it's, it's said that he was a secret Confucianist. So you come back to a Confucian legal legalist battle um, throughout the 70s when um, legalists are the good guys and Confucianists, who include Lin Biao, um, you know, thinks must restore the old order and so on. A kind of super conservatives, they are the bad guys so I mean that's probably the strongest moment in which legalism kind of was revived in 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 modern China, otherwise as Raoul said it, it's, it's there underneath but it's um, disguised. What's the sense in which legalism and the uh, impositions on the and the concern with itself through these systems um, made China um, reluctant to have anything to do with the outside world there's enough going on in its mighty empire was there something in legalism that would have contributed um, to that? It's an interesting question. I don't see the, the, a strong external dimension uh, there. And if we if you look at sort of how it has been appropriated in the present day, it is to bolster confidence in the Chinese mission, but there isn't necessarily sort of an anti-foreign element to it. I think, I think what, what came up with, with Mao Zedong, what I think appealed to him, is the fact that like the legalists, uh, particularly like the first emperor, he was keen to create something new and he had no compulsion about dismissing the past. What's happening in the present moment more is a, uh, a sort of an eclectic move to pick from legalism, from Confucianism, elements from Chinese culture that can bolster confidence. Mm-hmm. 
and indeed, and, and turn it inwards. And that's actually how even you know public figures and politicians in China today are using legalist ideas. Most notably, Xi Jinping, you know, the president of the People's Republic and secretary general of the Communist Party, has been quoted as quoting from the Han Feitze. And he, he 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 mentioned he 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 quoted something along the lines that if the if 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 those who uphold the law are strong, then the state will be strong, and those who those who uphold the law are weak, then the state will be weak. He's not addressing the people. He's addressing, of course, the people in the party. He's addressing. He's he's he's, he's engaged in an anti-corruption campaign within his party. But there's a wonderful idea who, how, how somebody can actually sort of go back to these these classical thinkers and sell them somehow as as, as very contemporary without actually openly to be, be seen to be dictatorial in the same way as the first emperor would have been. Francis, Francis Wood. Well, yes, because at the same time, there's quite a kind of promotion of Confucianism. So it's very much like the Han Dynasty again, that you know, underneath you've got this tough underpinning and on top you start going back to the good old days and the gentle days of Confucius. Is there any... Sorry, Hilda, you yeah, I was going to add that, yes, it's a nice mix of legalism, Confucianism and Leninism because ultimately now what the position of authority that needs to be uh, protected is that of the party, not necessarily just Xi Jinping himself. Does Confucianism really play a part today, then? Any of you, Francis? Well, they, they've revived the Confucian rituals at the temple um, and, and, and off, so, so that kind of happens annually. And yes, no, it's, it's been mentioned again, as well as by people like Xi, Xi Jinping. They've, they bring back Confucius as being the good old days. Do you have to be a secret Confucianist, or can you admit to it? Well, I think you can admit to it now as a sort of tourist. You can go to the Confucian temple and dress up as Confucius and, and listen to Confucian music, etc. It's a kind of popular thing. Hilda. Yes, and there, there is also an expectation that uh, this this will help, that uh, the, the younger generation in particular is suspected of being too materialistic uh, and that the, going back to uh, Confucian uh, values might might help in, in some way. And actually there, there is an, a foreign element as well, uh, or uh, at least an attempt to set up these Confucian uh, academies abroad is also uh, part of the mission, that to show that there is a, uh, a Chinese moral uh, culture that mm-hmm. will now be part of the way in which uh, China defines its socialism. Mm-hmm. And there are two, two ideas that transpire in both the use of legalism and Confucianism actually in China today. First is that hierarchy is a good thing. You know, society is by definition hierarchical. And secondly, that good citizens are people who are very role conscious. They know where their place is in society. And, and, and so they, they, they try and stick to that. And that's obviously uh, is something that can be, can be used and exploited by, by people in power in various ways. Briefly and finally, Francis, is the word legalism used in uh, China today? No, not really. I mean, except amongst students of philosophy, no. But it's there. The 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 ideas are there, but it's not um, openly spoken about. Thank you very much, Francis Wood, Hilda DeVert and Rule Stack. Next week we'll be talking about circadian rhythms, an intrinsic clock mechanism that pervades the body, including the brain. That'll be fun. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. You look at Chinese history and you think, well, it's all confusion. And then you mm. think, no, there's always it's a legal always code. It's, and it's, they're just dressing it up and administering it by people who've lent the Confucian mm. classics. You know, they defeat the first emperor, etc., etc. Mm. They kind of wipe everything out. But, but then, as Ronald said, and as better. you said in your notes, after a century or so, the hand creep back to, to what we call legalism. Well, never really abandoned it. I mean,. Yeah. But it's fascinating how, so, how, so, how, how universal the ideas are. And actually, I increasingly, as I, as I study these texts, uh, uh, 
more and more you see you see actually you know sort of even in China today uh, you know a great deal of these ideas bubbling up or a great deal of the concerns that the first emperor and the legalists were, 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 were uh, yeah. struggling with are actually concerns of, 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 of politicians in China today how do you control a population most importantly how do you prevent a population from moving around how do you prevent <laughs> ah, a, I forgot that a, a, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 how do you make a population yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, and that may be why legalism itself doesn't come up. I think for them it's not necessarily associated mm. with the kinds of traditions that we tend to analyze. For them it's, it's just part of a repertoire yeah. of uh, political yeah. ideas that mm. are around. Yeah. Uh, mm. And the same actually goes with yeah. Confucianism to an extent, that uh, it is sort of a shared cultural... Are they to bend the philosophies in order to do this enormous... Uh, Embark this enormous expansion, uh, economic expansion into Australia and Africa and South America and so on. Is there something that justifies that in any of their philosophical systems? Feed the people. It's, Feed the people. it's keeping your granaries um, well stuffed, even yeah. if your granaries are now in Africa and yeah. South America. And here we could say That'll that actually happy. if we move further to the Hun, some of the uh, the prime ministers who partially also adopted uh, legalist ideas did have an agenda of uh, expanding certainly in some directions that mm. where there were mm. resources, mm. Uh, horses, mm -hmm. like for Chin example. China and Rome. That, and, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that, that uh, does get mm -hmm. uh, justified. But it mm -hmm. also is all, always questions because mm -hmm. Confucians are always very sensitive to this idea that it might cost too much. It might be too much of a burden mm -hmm. on, on the population. Mm -hmm. So we should be far more careful mm -hmm. uh, in, in pushing forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is certainly mm -hmm. that element uh, as well, and it comes back through mm -hmm. time, 11th century, for example, and there's another move to go to go west. Um, but I think what, what's probably different uh, when we compare it to sort of European expansionism is that uh, there is always somebody and, and people in, in powerful positions who put the brake on, who, who don't want to mm -hmm. see this happen. Mm -hmm. And, and to go back to your Africa, China and Africa, and the big conundrum now is, of course, China needs to feed itself. Now, if we go back to the legalists, you know, who said agriculture is the absolute economic basis of society. Now, of course, uh, <clears throat> it is it, the conundrum is, you know, how, 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 how does a how is a tradition that actually values agriculture as the primary source of somebody's livelihood? How does it turn into the mercantile society that it has become? How do you deal with merchants who like moving peasants, move around? You can't control them. You can't tax them. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you control these people and at the same time ensure that you have enough people on the ground who are actually productive? And, and this is a tension, actually, that runs almost mm. through you know, 3,000 years of Chinese history. There are many more philosophy and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4.